Hello, and welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, a conversation with the owners-designers of Midori House, a super energy-efficient passive solar home. They reduced their energy use by 95%, no, 80%, but that's still a lot, all without installing solar electricity. We'll talk with Kurt Hurley. If you want to support Planet Watch, we have a new Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's a web platform that lets you give small or large donations from 2 to $200 a month. In return, you'll get rewards like a first listen to our podcast, shout-outs on the show, and even a cameo appearance. At higher levels, we're offering a stargazing party or a physics and nature walk by Joe Jordan, that's me, or a combo campfire sing-along star party with Rachel, wonderful musician, and Joe. Check out our video and options at patreon.com slash planet underscore watch. Again, patreon.com slash planet underscore watch. That's Patreon with an N. <laughs> no Patriot. <laughs> right, right. We are patriotic, but not in that same way that you might think. Um, so now, a short feature from my Cabrillo College journalism student, Alexis Navarro. With Christmas fast approaching, millions of Americans are busy buying Christmas trees. Which is better for the earth, real or artificial? Alexis helps us sort out this yearly conundrum. The big decision used to be paper or plastic. Now, when it comes to Christmas trees, the big question is, fake or real? Which is better for the earth? I found out the question is all confused with what feels properly Christmassy to people and what matches their expectations and memories. In Watsonville, California, where I live, there are some strong opinions on the matter. What do you think is greener, real Christmas trees or artificial Christmas trees? So I think that's a trick question. It's hard for me to answer that. but. I want to say, just like gut reaction to that question, I would say the greener would be plastic, the fake Christmas trees. But because I wouldn't be spending all the energy every year to go and go hunt down a Christmas tree. So I think that's where a lot of the waste is for me is that I pack up all my kids, we go to a farm, we go try to cut one down. We don't like any of them, so we drive somewhere else. For some families, buying a real Christmas tree gives them a real sentimental value. Oh yeah, I think for most people, artificial trees definitely don't have a sentimental value. But maybe we could maybe we could cultivate the value of it being if it is the greener alternative. Maybe people could attach their sentiment to the good that they're doing for the environment. Right. Yeah. Now, my partner and I, back when we used to have Christmas trees, we would go to the nursery and buy a live tree in a pot, and then um, plant that tree in our yard. So that's probably a really good way to do it. Um, it's certain, that's probably certainly a lot greener alternative than a cut tree that you're going to throw out every year. Nancy Lockwell is the solid waste manager at Watsonville Public Works, the agency that must deal with the discarded trees, both real and fake. We do see um, artificial trees in the garbage, and people will... Um, they no longer, maybe the lights don't work anymore, they're bent, they're missing branches, people will throw them away. And where do those go? Those would go to the landfill. And the reason is that artificial trees are made out of plastic and metal, and it's um, once you have two completely different materials bound together, it's pretty impossible to recycle them. Um, if somebody was really adamant and tried to remove the metal, um, the metal could be recycled. But typically, they're, if they're thrown away in the garbage, they're going to go to the landfill. The artificial tree was born in 1930, when the Addis Company dyed a bunch of their toilet brushes green and stuck them on a stand. Americans bought 27.4 million natural trees last year, compared with about 18.6 million fake trees. The National Tree Association said that the sales of fake trees have been gaining steadily in recent years, and other experts suggest that the market could hit 50-50 status within a decade. They say real trees are much better for the earth because they are a renewable, recyclable, natural product grown on tree farms throughout North America, while fake Christmas trees are a non-renewable, non-biodegradable, plastic and metal product, 
often made in overseas factories. Most tree farms are small family operations. Here's Nancy Lockwell again. We pick up about 2,000 trees every year after the holiday season. Our residents can set them out at the curb on their garbage day and uh, for one week, and that week this year coming up is going to be January 8th through 12th, and we go through the neighborhoods and pick those trees up, and each year we get about 2,000. And what do you do with the trees? The trees are ground up and chipped into um, both wood chips and mulch, and then that material goes out to um, use in, in um, landscaping, and it can be used um, on trails, um, Mulch is great to keep the soil um, moist, so you use less water. So it's also a water conservation method. Um, so all those those Christmas trees get get ground and chipped into um, into mulch. Back at the local Christmas tree lot, owner Julie Paz talks about where she gets her Christmas trees. So we buy our trees from um, a farmer in Oregon. Half, about half of them, and the other half we get from another Christmas tree. Um, seller. He has some lots up in the Bay Area, but he also gets his from growers in Oregon. And what happens to the tree she doesn't sell? We try to um, get somebody to mulch them. Um, sometimes, sometimes we donate them to needy families or organizations that help needy families, but the ones that go brown we try to get them to be mulched to get rid of them. And what kind of trees does this tree seller prefer? The real trees because of the um, the toxic waste are the, that's produced from making the trees. And then also when you want to get rid of a tree, a, an artificial tree, it probably doesn't decompose very well even if it goes into like the landfill. With the debate of real versus fake trees, Nancy Lockwell had this to say based on her research. It depends on who you talk to, um, of which is more environmentally friendly. But from my my research, it looks like a, a using a live tree is um, has less impact on the environment than the artificial tree. Um, the reasons are that the artificial trees are made out of a plastic called PVC, polyvinyl chloride. And that's a particularly toxic kind of plastic in terms of the manufacturing. And then the final disposal, it's very difficult to recycle. It's not going to get recycled if it's on a tree. Um, sometimes they have lead in the plastic. And the, um, the artificial tree starts out um, as petroleum. That's where how we make plastic. So that has to be extracted. It has to be refined turned into plastic, um, the metal, same thing, it's going to come from the earth, and the trees are generally made in China, they're going to be shipped over to the United States, and then when when the owner of that tree is, is done with it, it's going to go in the landfill. Artificial trees do seem worse in the long run for the earth, especially when it comes to clogging up our landfills. But for many shoppers, fake or real isn't a major worry. At least, not yet. For Planet Watch, this is Alexa Navarro wishing you all a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Okay, interesting story. Um, yeah, this is back to Joe. And um, if you, we have a new website associated with this program. I mean, you can get all the archives off of zbsradio.com, and you can even listen to this show there if you're not near an AM band radio. But planetwatchradio.com, the email, as we say every week, uh, that you can reach us during the show and between shows is radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. But the website, the new website, which is still under construction, so bear with us for a few more weeks, but it's planetwatchradio.com so check that out and the significant thing about that is you can subscribe there oh, to yes. our podcast and so if you can't sit at your desktop computer or your laptop and listen you can get us on the go as a podcast by going to that website and they have a button a subscribe button planetwatchradio.com yay yeah, okay there we go and now some news from our intern tommy martin yeah um 
The Department of Health and Human Services has been instructed by the Trump administration to avoid using certain phrases in, ofi in official documents. The Center for D Disease Control and Prevention was told to stop using seven phrases, including evidence-based and science-based, or the words fetus or transgender. Another HHS agency was told to omit diversity, vulnerable, and entitlement. That agency was also instructed to refer to the Affordable Care Act as Obamacare. At the State Department, sex education is now labeled as sexual risk avoidance, which has been defined in recent congressional funding bills as abstinence-only practices until marriage as the primary form of sex education. Several media outlets report that policy analysts were told of the forbidden words at a meeting last week with senior officials who oversee the budget. Thank you for that story, although it's hard to thank anybody for that information, <laughs> uh, that disinformation news. Um, we here stand for truth and evidence-based science, and we're going to say it a lot on this show, so watch out. <laughs> and now we have another news story for you about uh, some recent developments in modeling. Okay, so scientists have new tools that link climate change to extreme weather events. Three studies from the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society confirmed that the deadly heat wave across Asia in 2016 could not have occurred due to natural climate variability alone. The studies use scientific attribution of observable changes in the environment to rising global temperatures, which could be used to improve climate simulations by capturing some of the more subtle changes in the atmosphere and oceans. Many of the scientists in the American Meteorological Society and NOAA consider these changes a consider these studies a game changer in the conversation about definitive and short-term impacts of human-caused climate change. And thank you for that. Um, we should certainly identify yourself, or we can identify you. This yeah, is one that, of Joe's students. That new voice uh, was one of my prize students in a physics class I taught last fall over at Gavilon College, Sanaya Lakdawala, right? And uh, Sanaya, I think that name means light. Is that right? Or something like Yeah, light. And, and it's especially appropriate in this dark time of year here. And for a physics but, student. <laughs> right. So <laughs> welcome. Uh, she's kind of doing a, an internship or a mentorship uh, kind of deal with us for a couple of few months. So thanks. And you'll be hearing other that. young yeah. voices of interns from Cabrillo College as the next couple of months goes forward. Well, we're very, very excited today to welcome our guests in the studio. Today we have Kurt Hurley, who holds a BS in physics from the University of California, Santa Cruz. He created a pioneering microgrid curriculum for Santa Clara University, where he also teaches. And he currently operates a consulting practice focused on deep decarbonization of the built environment. And together with his wife, who's here, is Chie Kawahara. He is the author of the book Midori House, Transformation from Old House to Green Future. They took a 95-year-old house and reduced its energy usage by 80%. So we're very, very happy to have you both in the studio. Thank you for being here on Planet Watch. Thank you. Love being here. Thank you. So anybody who wants to look along <laughs> with us, if you have a laptop or a computer with you right now, you can go to Midori House, H-A-U-S, that's spelled like the uh, German version of house. And Midori is M-I-D-O-R-I, -I, which means green in Japanese, right? That's correct. She is Japanese uh, by birth. Uh, by the way, I wanted to start this discussion off with a fact, which maybe you can correct me on, but uh, I got this from the from the great Don Aitken, one of the pioneers of the solar field, and a, a hero of uh, Christian and Mark Jensen Sullivan, whose straw bale home you cite in your book. Uh, he said once that uh, over the next 50 years or so, approximately half of the entire stock of buildings on the earth is going to be rebuilt, which is, when you think about it, a kind of a staggering thing, but hey, there's tremendous opportunity there. In other words, let's do it right this time and forevermore. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe the statistics are a little different, but it's a lot of potential for really green building out there. What do you, what do you folks... Uh, have you heard something similar to that? Maybe it's in your book. I haven't read your whole book yet, but uh, anyway. I don't have numbers for the statistics of uh -huh. the number of buildings, but something that I did learn is that there are about 80 million existing homes in the United States. That's over 30 years old. And 30 years old is about the time when they put in ins insulation as part of the building codes. 
meaning that you know these homes tend to be really inefficient and uses a lot of energy. So that's our opportunity. Yeah, you know the selling point for this whole interview here is uh, that these folks have built or designed, and you know they took a, an old craftsman style home and retrofitted it to one of the most energy efficient homes in the world i mean you know there are a bunch of them that are comparable but percentage wise i mean it's probably in the top tenth of one percent i mean in the good sense you know we talk about the one percent now in a kind of a bad way but this is the good one percent or tenth of one percent or whatever you you got any idea where you are stack up in that uh, statistic it's it's really good is the main point here well, I guess that's a great lead-in to talk about what is a passive house. That's what they call it, a passive so, house. So a passive house is, is, a, is a building approach in which all the systems of the building are working together, like, like dancers on stage working uh, towards uh, you know, what, what they're choreographing together. And, and because all of the building systems are so well integrated in their placement and in their, in their operation, uh, it results in a, in a radical reduction in the use of energy. And I, w- I was actually quite uh, skeptical that, that this could occur, but uh, it's been a life-transforming process uh, for my wife and I to have uh, learned about the passive house standard and then actually to have uh, collaborated uh, with our design team and, and pull this off. So uh, it's it's really it's a story of transformation, and it's... Uh, it's really a, a lot of things that are common sense, but there's uh, there's a lot of systems thinking and discipline in that regard. How you're making a selection about something that's going to last a long time, and and also not just the material being selected, but it's going to have a relationship about uh, the other objects in the or other uh, components in the building. So that relationship is set in place for decades. You said so, it's a transformational process. Um, let's start with your transformation. You had to kind of become self-learners on this entire world of passive houses. How long did that take you before you actually knew you found the house you were going to use as your guinea pig house, as your main home, as well as a project? I love that question about transformation because where we are today is so different than where we started off. For example... Initially, what I used to think of as a green home, a green building, was a house with solar panels, with some judicious use of recycled material, low-flow water fixtures, and just, you know, feeling good. But where we are now today is so different. For example, the house itself, when it's built like a thermos, as opposed to a coffee pot, It uses way less energy. 80% less. So let's Mm -hmm. say the average person's power bill is $300 a month. We're talking just such a tiny fraction of that. Do you mind if I ask what your power bill is or if you even have one? We do have a power bill. Um, So I think right now in the wintertime, we're probably paying about $55 to $70 a month. And that's for gas and electric. We're not an all-electric house. That was what was amazing to me when I read about this. They don't have solar electricity. Most people would assume um, that an environmentally friendly house would have solar panels. Is there a reason you didn't put them there? Well, one of the uh, thoughts, again, is that uh, we we have first applied some solar thermal to offset uh, our domestic hot water energy requirement. Also, we use that approach for the the heating of the interior of our structure, and and solar thermal has a pretty mature efficiency, seventy five to eighty percent for flat plate solar thermal. And how do you define and solar thermal? So solar so solar thermal comes people? in different flavors. We have flat plate collectors, and we needed only about ten square meters of that for our entire demand. So we have plenty of roof left for solar electric when. And we're going to do that in the future. What are flat plate? Coll- I'm sorry. <laughs> well, solar, thermal, solar thermal means uh, for hot water heating, or it could be space yeah. heating, but that's more rare, actually. Yeah, so solar, yes. solar thermal takes the, the heat energy of the sun, and it harvests it and stores it in a liquid that can be conveyed to a heating appliance or uh, directly to a hot water uh, heater uh, vessel right, hmm. for storage. Can you actually use it to cook with, too, or is it not that hot? It's just for heating the... 
You, you could conceivably harvest it and, and, and use a, one of these uh, sealed uh, cooking appliances, but uh, we, don't, we don't currently do that. But that's, that's not, not, imp- not impossible. Mm. One of the things to keep in mind about this house that will really grab your attention is that it's so efficient that basically a lot of the heating that's needed in this house can be done by the inhabitants, the body heat of Kurt and Shea t- living t- in the house. Two people can heat a whole house with 98 degrees well, it, it turns out every human being uh, depending on uh, our metabolism uh you know maybe around 80 watts and then the the refrigerator is a, is a heat pump right. and it's keeping the f- the food cold by uh you know working in in the in the mode in which it expels uh heat into the interior air and every time we take a shower uh you know all of those are examples of heat that are normally wasted by buildings that aren't passive houses so once we become very efficient at regenerating and reusing that heat rather than, say, paying the utility again and again and again because that heat's being uh, thrown away, basically, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the type of approach that accountants really love because, <laughs> you know, once you have your heat resource, you use it again and again and again rather than pay for it iteratively and, and, and you know, almost forever. So it's, uh, you know, it's sort of uh, taking efficiency to its practical uh, you know, cost-effective uh, limit. That's really what it's yeah. about. So, you know, I realized a good term that I don't think I've ever used before for this system is it's not an airtight house. Th- those can be very unhealthy. It's a heat-tight house. It keeps the heat while allowing healthy exchange of air through things like heat recovery ventilators, which Kurt and Shea are going to get into more. But but so that's the thing. It's It's really tight in terms of the heat, but the air is still allowed to... You know, no, flow. actually, it is very, very airtight. It's not like a submarine, but if you were to compare passive house standards to conventional construction, so a new construction today is um, thought to be at about five or six air changes per hour. There's a device that you can use to measure how much air is leaking in and out of the house when you have all the windows and doors closed. And the condition that you measure that is with a simulating a 20-mile-hour wind blowing outside. Like yesterday, it was pretty windy. It was more than 20 miles per hour, right? So at our house, when a 20-mile-hour wind would blow, our house would turn over the air content, internal air content, by less than one per, once per hour, whereas with a conventional construction, it would be five to six times an hour. And with so my then, old house in the mountains, probably ten times an hour. Last night was freezing, and we could feel drafts. You know, we know yeah. where they are. Where ventilation is it's actually a big old leakage. Wood, yeah, so we have but, a wood stove going, which is so not that But so how do you maintain healthy air when it's that airtight? How do you, how do you get all the, you know, stuff from humans and pets that, or whatever that you don't want in the house microbes. how do, you, how do so, you get that out of there so that's a that's a great question that's uh we give a lot of tours we've toured almost a thousand people through a house and that's kind of part two or the second station of our tour uh, we have continuous ventilation uh which is which is required of uh of of uh, you know buildings that people live in if they're over a thousand square feet but it's a very special intelligent type of continuous ventilation in that it brings in fresh air and exhausts the stale air but it, it does that in a way that the, there's thermal coupling between those two airstreams. And, and in a very cold climate like Chicago, that coupling can be uh, 85, almost 90% efficient. So it's as if uh, you know, you're, you're handing off the heat, but you're getting the, oxi- the, the higher oxygen and the, yeah, and the okay. lower, lower carbon dioxide, which we need for our metabolism. So, so it's, it's, it's a great example of how if the house had evolved with us in our solving the physics problem of keeping our blood temperature constant, which we're, we're warm-blooded creatures, it'd probably have come up with something like that. An so exoskeleton on top of our warm-blooded yeah. mammalian, like a, like a hermit crab. So you still do let <laughs> air, new air come in. It's yes. just not at the wasteful rate that standard houses do. Well, it's, it, it's, when we bring fresh air in, uh, we inject the heat uh, at the interior temperature into that air coming in. So the heat itself's not wasted, just right, like you right. say, it's a heat-tight yeah, approach. Heat tight. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the story of how you came to this amazing house project, it's it's not just like, hey, we need to build a house, why not make it green? I think you said it took you seven or eight years just to find the right house. Can you tell me what you did in that period of time? You kind of took yourself to passive house school. How did you do that? 
it wasn't seven or eight years of passive house school, but it was seven to eight years from the point of us deciding, hey, we want to build a house or we wanted to co-create a house together to the point where we found a house. So the, our story is about dual transformation. One is of the building and one is of us as the homeowners. And one of the first transformations that occurred for us is the notion of green building being new and new buildings being good. Because we've seen so many green buildings on Green Homes Tours that were newly constructed or heavily renovated, I had it in my mind that, oh, if you're going to do a green building, you got to get a new piece of um, house put together on an open piece of land. And frankly, we looked, we looked, and we just couldn't find an open piece of land in a walkable area. So we shifted to choosing something that was an existing structure that was ready for a remodel. And if you think about all these lots, like in Palo Alto, that are worth so much, people are raising these perfectly good houses. They're, that's quite wasteful. I mean, unless you recycle all that lumber, you are really undoing a lot of really good materials. So you saved a whole house worth, or a lot of it. It didn't just get scrapped and down to the studs, did it? Uh, saved yeah. a lot. We, we did save um, quite a bit. And also, we did um, deconstruct or take apart the house and... By volume, I believe we had recycled about 86% of the material. So these are like wood, the plaster, um, old doors, windows, etc. Those all either went to the recycling center or it went to places like Habitat Restore. That's an important point because uh, we remember that, that wood is this amazing nanostructured material that's actually carbon sequestered out of our atmosphere. So when we pursue a wood frame construction, it's important to have an approach where that wood can last for a very long period of time before having to go to a landfill, ultimately. So, yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Reuses. Yeah. And have you guys heard of the 3R? You're familiar with the 3Rs, right? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> <laughs> Recycle, reuse, and... Yeah, and th there's, a, the specific, yeah, there's a specific use. And re reduce is the first part. Reduce reuse and recycle and essentially that's what we are doing with our house we wanted to reduce our energy consumption we wanted to reuse the energy and we talked about energy in terms of heat and recycle is reusing some of the materials yes if you just joined us uh, we're speaking with Che Kawahara and her husband Kurt Hurley and they both have uh, written a wonderful book Midori House I think Che was the main author on that, Transformation from Old House to Green Future with Passive House. And there's a website, by the way, uh, MidoriHouse.com, M-I-D-O-R-I-H-A-U-S.com. And, and this know, is Planet Watch with Rachel Ann Goodman and Joe Jordan. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's see. Uh, what uh, We got any questions from our uh, interns on, on any of this? Or, or do we have any questions that are coming in from out there in... Uh, Cyberspace, uh, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Well, I have a question. Um, yeah. <laughs> I always have a million. Um, so you got to the point where you had a design. Did you design it yourself, or who was your main partner in creating this incredibly scientifically cra crafted, super sensitive passive house? That's a great question. And I think it, uh, uh, it's, it's reminding me and, and Chie that we were so fortunate to have a really uh, talented, gifted team that were passionate about um, the, the project, and so um, how do we how do we go about that? So we were on a we had a budget a, a, a tight budget, so we we didn't really change the footprint of the house, the the condition floor area, if you will, um, and and we changed very little about the way the rooms are laid out. What we did was we improve the efficiency of the envelope or the outside, the skin of the building. Uh, and it kind of gets into the kind of the, maybe the six quick things that a passive house is. So you have a, a, a great piece of software that simulates, uh, it's very specific to the weather and the, and the, and the sun uh, access on the site. And then you have uh, a budget for the energy it'll use measured in two ways. And then the remaining four things are kind of what you'd expect from a ultra-efficient building. You have uh, generally triple glaze windows and doors, lots of insulation, the heat recovery ventilator that we asked, and 
And last, sixthly, but not least, is this uh, airtightness. Uh, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, that can be a, a challenging thing with an existing structure, but it's important because up to 40% of the, uh, you know, we can use lose up to 40% of the heating and cooling energy through leaks and fissures in that envelope, so sealing it up is important. So those are the six things, uh, and you sort of you follow that, and we, we had a very talented architect that kind of talked to us what were our living in the structure after it was built goals, and we, and we pursued that design. So uh, we didn't do it ourselves. We had, we had some really talented, gifted help and an amazing uh, synergy in that group, just like the, the systems in the building have a synergy now that it is built and finished. Yeah, you know, uh, one important distinction we should make, uh, you know, you hear passive house. You might be thinking passive solar. And it took me a little while to get this. Um, I mean, passive solar is good. You know, the whole idea of passive is you're not using pumps, fans, motors. You're using natural circulation and patterns of light and so on. But passive solar is using, you know, big windows in the right places to let lots of sun in and heavy, you know, uh, thermal mass, you know, stone, masonry, concrete, whatever, and the floors that can re-radiate heat at night. Uh, but passive uh, may not actually do passive solar at all. It emphasizes the, just the airflow and the heat flow uh, independent of the solar component. There is a wonderful home that your house is reminiscent of, and I'm wondering if you've actually been there. It's over in San Jose. This was the hero and mentor of Kristen and Mark Jensen Sullivan, who have the straw bale home. We're going to have them on this show sometime soon. They have a straw bale home that I actually had a little hand in helping build in Capitola Village. Their mentor, who died suddenly a few years ago, Frank Schiavo, infamous guy over at San Jose State. He, he was famous for never generating any garbage. He defied the city to bill him for garbage. And, uh, but anyway, he uh, I've actually got a water jug here with his picture on it, Frank Schiavo, the man, the myth, the legend. Well, the point is he took an old house and retrofitted it to this really great passive solar house, and I think they still do tours. The current inhabitant of that house still takes people on tours. Uh, I don't know if you ever got to see that, but... Uh, I'd anyway. love to. So yeah. now I'm confused, so set me straight. What's the difference between a passive solar house and a passive house? Okay, so so great question. This is something that uh, I, I, I enjoy uh, ex explaining for, for people. So, uh, you know, passive solar, uh, Joe summarized uh, quite well. Passive solar uh, concentrates on high solar heat gains in the southern and western exposures and, and thermal mass that's going to be s suitable for uh, not only – uh, you know, taking it in through the through the fenestration of the windows, but also storing it temporarily, so like a trom wall or something. And this is actually one sliver of the passive house approach. So, you know, we calculate the solar heat gains in the different compass points, and we look at the, the coatings which are tuned on the windows based on compass point. But there's a lot more to it. And, and this reminds me, this is a great story, happy 40th birthday to the Saskatchewan Conservation House, which was built by our friends up in Canada and also some Americans, uh, but it's having its 40th birthday this year. It was built in 1977. But it was the first home that combined the principles of passive solar, which Joe summarized quite nicely, and the ultra-efficient envelope, which included a heat recovery ventilation, air tightness, and ultra-insulation. It was so, known as the super-insulated house. Sup yeah, super-insulated house of the and 70s. And the there it did get quite cold. Yes, so. and it's still, it's still with us, and the house is still working. So uh, I'm not sure if they're giving tours, but just thought I'd acknowledge the Saskatchewan yeah. Conservation House. It's a bit of an interest of the, the history of, um, of building science, which is really a science in its infancy still. I mean, Passive House is the world's current, uh, you know, most advanced energy approach, but the, the things that will, that will come past that we're going to do even better. And actually, one thing that caught my attention about this a few years ago when you guys were building your house, as I understood at the time, it was only, maybe you can correct me on the numbers, the, it was only like the sixth or, I don't know, maybe tenth passive solar home certified in California, which is that, I mean, now it's probably, there's probably more. But Shea was telling me the other day there's a lot more of them back east, like in New York. I, I don't have the exact numbers, mm -hmm. but just in our neighborhood, or rather in the Bay Area, there are a number of certified passive houses. Um, there's a handful in Palo Alto. Um, there are some in San Francisco, in Napa, Sonoma. Um, I believe there are some in Southern California. But the point of it is that it is still rather rare. And 
the thing about passive house is that one of the key elements to it is the modeling. So the model, the software model, would calculate what would yield a very low energy use. So here's one way to think about it. When you have a conventional construction, the architect designs it, builder builds it, and then they figure out how to heat and cool it. Mm -hmm. With passive house, it's the opposite way. You start with the energy budget and say, I only want to use this tiny amount of energy. What kind of walls do I need to build? What kinds of ventilation, what kind of mechanical systems do I need? And you construct a house to meet a tiny, tiny demand. And so with using the software, you can build a house to the standard and you don't have to certify to it, but if you do certify to it, you know, it lends credibility and it adds more to the publicity to it. Perfect. And indeed, you, you have opened your home to people curious about how to do this and occasionally do once a year a home tour. If people want to go from elsewhere to see your home, to tour it, would you like to um, sure. tell us how they would do that? Yeah. Um, there are. We open our doors about three times a year to the public, and we also do public um, tours for local schools. So we have a tour in November, usually the second weekend in November, which all of the passive houses around the world are opening the door. It's called International Passive House Days. <laughs> so we participate in that. There's also another um, international tour that happens in middle of June during the hot summer months, another Passive House Day. So we usually participate in those two events and we, you, we often add another tour or two. And mm -hmm. I list all of the uh, tours that we have uh, for our house at midorihouse.com slash events. And for those people listening outside of California, is there a centralized uh, website they could go to go on a Passive House tour where they live? Yeah, there is. I don't have that information off the top of my head. But if we were to Google International Passive House Days, you'll get to the right site. Fantastic. You know, I think one of those houses you mentioned over in the Bay Area, like Palo Alto, I think we all work together over there. The Magic House, but it's named for somebody whose name is M-A-G-I-C-K, maybe. Is that a passive house? Magic is a passive house, and that's a really special, wonderful place. It's an intentional community mm. that's also a passive house, mm. and they give a fantastic tour. Another Magic great uh, opportunity for listeners, if they, if they Google a hairdryer house, you'll see a passive house. It was built in San Jose, and you'll see the extraordinary result of all the systems working together in that a hairdryer on high or approximately 1,500-watt uh, source of, of you know, power is, is keeping it at the design temperature in the coldest night of the year uh, So in San Jose. So, so this, is a, this is a great segue into, into why is all this really important? Uh, why are we here? Uh, why, did we, why did we do this? And so I, I kind of come back to... Uh, my own my own life and and the life of us collectively us humans that are alive and in, in these generations that are that are living together now we have a extraordinary challenge before us um, and 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 that challenge on the horizon can appear daunting and it can be it can be uh, redoubled because we may have a sense of the inability to act and and being a bit powerlessness you know this and and so if we kind of step back, you know, many of us have used carbon calculators and realize, well, we live in a first world country. About a third of our emissions come from flying in jets, another third approximately from surface transport, another third from building occupancy. And then there's a little bit that, you know, our diet, the choice of foods we eat, how much meat, et cetera. So the amazing thing with passive house is it's doing three things simultaneously. It's taking uh, and it's reducing by a factor of 80% the energy that the building uses and the other things are, uh, uh, are that, number two, is that energy that's freed up, the, the solar electric that you put on the roof could be used to charge an electric vehicle, which, which uh, you know, that is a, another huge reduction in carbon emissions for, from our, the, the activities of our living on the planet. And the third, but very important, a little bit more subtle, is that once the envelope or the shell of the building becomes ultra-efficient, it can take in the energy to keep it cool or warm, depending on what the climate is, uh, and and that building can coast through many hours, more than a day, maybe a couple of days. This 
This is a metric that's not really very well known. It's called tau, uh, the building time the, constant. The Greek letter, tau? Yeah. Oh. And, so, and so this really ties into what um, the California um, – the energy commission, our, our energy commissioners are trying to solve the problem of how do we balance these intermittent renewables. We have wind, we have solar. So with, with ultra-efficient shell buildings, uh, rather than investing a lot of chemical battery storage, uh, you know, flow cell batteries, et cetera, the buildings themselves can be built to a higher standard and, and be that thermal storage. So we can take in the solar generation or the wind generation when it's happening. So it's kind of a triple whammy. <laughs> <laughs> a good whammy. <laughs> so uh, we have a question from a listener, but uh, it just struck me as you were talking that, you know, Kurt and Shea are among the pioneers of this, and Shea's book is now making it easier. It's still going to be hard if lots of people want to do this, and that's what we need is l most people doing this from now on or something approaching this. So that book is a great resource. Well, here's a question from the listener. You talked about um, <laughs> building occupancy. Um you know, you can build the wonderful, the most wonderful greenhouse and technically sweet, et cetera, but if you live like slobs, you know, if you have really bad habits. Um, and so here's the question from Linda in, up in uh, Bonnie Dune near Santa Cruz. Are there any personal practices that you have developed specifically as a result of living in your house? Okay, so, so great question. Thanks, maybe Linda. I'll try to answer it quickly, and then maybe you can chime in. So, uh, you know, passive house alone isn't going to get us to that, you know, just having the ultra-efficient shell. You have to apply a discipline and a rigor to every appliance that you're going to put in and, and look at how you're using those. Um, and, and in terms of tricks or things that we've learned, you know, the house is a university. It teaches us things about living. It's sort of like, you know, I've been reborn in this human life without dying yet. That's what a transformation is living in this house because the house, it acknowledges my thermoregulation strategy is a warm-blooded creature, and it's, it's, it's got these systems that, that, that embrace that, that my biology. And so here's an example is that we, uh, we designed our supply registers for our fresh air at 20 inches above our floor, and we kind of did that by accident, but it turns out that the air that's coming into the house is always at a slightly lower uh, relative humidity, and so we, we passively dry our clothing by putting on these old wooden uh, clothes racks in front of our supply register. Now, if we hadn't put it 20 inches above the ground, it'd be a, a little bit, you know, at the wrong elevation. So that was a kind of a serendipity. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are other, other things that we, we learned to use in the winter. We, we, we tend to heat our food inside, and maybe if, if we're having a heat wave, we have an appliance for, for uh, heating food outside if that's what we want to do. Did you, would you add anything Can to that? Can I stay on food for just a oh, minute okay. since you brought it up, and sure. then we'll go back? Yeah to the other things you might be doing differently. You had on your website a cooker that you heat something to 200 degrees, you stick it inside of this thermos-like thing, and it keeps cooking, and I'd never heard of that. It was really cool. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Actually, we don't have that, but after we've been giving tours, one of the tour participants came by with their version of show-and-tell, which is called a thermal cooker. So it's like a thermos, but larger, and it does exactly what you just described. You cook something like maybe a hot pot of soup, and you put it into this large thermos, and you seal it up, and it just cooks by residual heat. So that was something that we learned from one of our tour participants. It's kind of cool. Yeah, and an another thing, uh, when we, you know, say we are having a heat wave and we're cooking outside, I discovered that when you're, when you're cooking with natural grass, there are these, uh, there's a whole line of, of pots and and teapots and, 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 and soup cauldrons called a turbo pot. And it has, has these deep aluminum fins like you would put on a very microscopic scale on a semiconductor to keep it, the silicon from overheating. But it takes the flame of the, the natural gas combustion appliance and it delivers it into the heat with 40% more efficiency. So there are all these things out there that, uh, and I show that during the tour. This is the turbo pot, and they're, they're very reasonable. Yeah, and going back to, um, I think it was Linda's question about what are we doing something different now that we're living in a passive house. One thing that we are doing slightly differently, but no different than what I believe you might be doing is summer cooling. So we don't have an air conditioner in our house, but... On the days when we do have these heat waves, our house still is about 73, 74 degrees in the middle of the day, which is pretty comfortable. 
And we do that by doing night cooling. So just as you would open the windows, you know, at night or early mornings and let in the cool air and you seal it up and, you know, you lower your curtains and all that, we do the same thing. But our effect is amplified because our envelope, because our house is like a thermos, it's able to retain that coolness for much longer. I was uh, attracted to what you were saying and wanted to expand on that, if you will. Um, we're in this amazing time where we have to scale these kind of things up on a quite large level. And, and I think about affordability. Um, most of us are just trying to pay our mortgage and can barely keep the house, maintain much less, make it um, so efficient. How can we, in a bigger way, duplicate what you've done and, and in, are there halfway measures that still would scale on a, on a much more massive level? Yeah, so, so it's a great question. Um, so these, these, this type of building approach is pursued in Austria and Germany at null extra cost. So, so part of answering your question is, is do these things as rapidly as possible and build the, uh, the, the experience and the, and, the, and, the, and the practical know-how both for residential and non-residential construction. So I want to acknowledge the state of Pennsylvania has actually added passive house as part of its criteria uh, for affordable housing projects. Um, so, so that's that's a that's a step in the right direction. I believe twelve other uh, states in our country are, are 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 also kind of following the lead of Pennsylvania. You know, uh, the other day, when you guys were talking to us on the phone to sort of get our heads around how we're going to do this interview, you mentioned that there were many criteria for you know environmental enlightenedness, and you chose energy, which is a an obvious one because it's you know like the biggest and most polluting industry in the world and it's huge but another thing important thing that flows is water and yes. i'm remembering from a tour of your house you had like i don't know an industrial spray thing in your kitchen tell us real briefly about oh, that uh, oh so uh so if uh if i owned a restaurant which i don't uh you know i'd be i'd i'd, I'd want to serve my customers delicious food and have money uh, available to to pay my employees and so I'd be concerned about my uh, fixed expenses. So we do we do have a, uh, it's a, it's an amazing company. It's they're manufactured here in California. They're lead free, uh, and it's it's basically the spray rinse assembly that you would have in a restaurant. And the beautiful thing is, is it costs much less than these fancy <laughs> things you see at these plumbing stores for for homes. But it and it lasts forever, and you can replace every part one at a time. So, uh, yeah, it was a little bit of education. It uses one point is it one point one gallons per minute. So it's a so wow. the nozzle, it just uses the 60 PSI city water pressure, and it creates this high-velocity jet that will remove the food particles without resorting to surfactants, soap, hot water. So you can use cold water without soap, and it's, you know. So I was going to ask, can you cut metal with it? Maybe not quite that <laughs> well, high. Well, that's <laughs> Hey, wow. well, speaking of but miracles, I, I, I kind of wanted to throw something out there for just sort of a kind of a, a little bit of a cosmic thought is that uh, – you know, we we have we kind of have an interest. Is there? I mean, we're at this juncture of crisis. Is there other intelligent life out there? And the, the interesting little meditation once I, I gave a tour for someone who was a famous uh, uh, astronomer, and I said, well, you know, uh, most most star systems are actually binaries. So you know, the fact that we have a single sun is we're a little bit of a corner case. And, uh, you know, there's two different types of orbits. But, you know, if, we have, if there's intelligent life on these planets that are P-type orbits, they have really insane seasons because they'll have two suns in the sky, one sun and no sun. So they probably would have developed this. I mean, physics is the same everywhere as far as we know. They probably would have developed this passive house approach maybe early in their evolutionary arc than we have. So, so maybe we can't see these creatures, but odds, odds are highly probable they're warm-blooded because uh, coding for all our neurotransmitters is expensive so that's usually mm. the approach but uh, they're probably living in something really close to a passive house mm. hello hello out there yeah, yeah, yeah. i guess we'll have to wait and to you've find just out just made a nice segue into my three or four minute oddball stuff segment that we end the show with uh, we had a question from sanaya but it's it i think it might take us a little too far afield we'll do it next time well let's uh, wrap up this one before we go to yeah, the cosmic Lynn and thank to che and uh, Kurt for their wonderful Midori House book and this interview. Um, you can look for their book where? At Green Space Company and also at Bookshop Santa Cruz. Or you online? Or online at Amazon. Amazon, right. okay. Thank yeah. you both for being here. It's been fantastic and, and look forward to finding out what happens next. 
I think this was their first radio interview, and you aced it. It was great. Thank <laughs> you no so much for having us. Thank you. Hey, but so what Kurt was just talking about, about P-type orbits, and so I don't even know what that is. We'll have to talk later. But the sun and orbits of you know the Earth around the sun, we're at a special time now. I have to, I cannot get a show, let a show on this date escape without mentioning solstice. Okay, we're approaching the December solstice, which in the southern hemisphere is the beginning of summer. In our northern hemisphere here, it's the beginning of winter. And the sun will, at the moment of 8.28 a.m. California time, 11.28 a.m. Eastern time, it will be overhead for some lucky, probably fish, on the Tropic of Capricorn at 23.5 degrees south latitude. And why do they call it the Tropic of Capricorn? Well, guess what constellation the sun is in front of at this time of year, more or less? It's a zodiac constellation, the goat, which actually in the sky looks more like a boat or an inverted party hat, but it's Capricorn. Okay, and so at the summer solstice in June, what constellation do you think the sun's in front of when it's overhead at the Tropic of Cancer? <laughs> They're all off by about one constellation because of the wobble of the Earth's axis, the precession, and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, so um, happy winter coming up. And then, uh, you know, I can say right now, because it's been raging for three days and it's going to rage on for three or four more days, happy Hanukkah, everybody. And I've always been intrigued about, well, what's the astronomical origin of, you know, just like Easter in the Christian tradition, you know, that floats around. And I can tell you what that is. That's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Well, what about Hanukkah? Hanukkah, I just found out that it's, um, it's centered more or less on the new moon. Uh, that comes bef- the last new moon that comes before uh, I'm not sure about this part the winter solstice but anyway it start it starts about three days before the new moon and then ends about three days after the new moon and new moon is going to strike tomorrow or actually yeah tomorrow in California at um, about 10:30 10:30 p.m. in California so um, so there's a couple of little astronomical oh and one other thing here in Santa Cruz area. Get thee to the ocean at sunset tonight. I'm going to be stuck in a church listening to beautiful music, uh, you know, a seasonal concert. But you got to get out there and look at the green flash. It's so severe clear here. You're going to see the green flash at sunset. Look away from the sun until the last second and catch it as it goes down. It will turn emerald. So anyway, keep an eye on the sky. This is Joe Jordan. Thanks to our interns, uh, Tommy and uh, Sanaya, and to our wonderful guests, Kurt and Chie, and my wonderful co-host, Rachel. And she's going to finish it off here. Thank you all for listening. We have been Planet Watch. We will be back again with you on Christmas and New Year's, so stay tuned for more programs and check us out at planetwatchradio.com.